Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Prentice Hemphill. Prentice is a movement facilitator, somatics teacher, and practitioner, working at the convergence of healing, collective transformation, and political organizing. Prentice has spent the last 15 years bridging well-being and power building as a part of movement building organizations, most recently as the Healing Justice Director at Black Lives Matter Global Network. In 2016, Prentice was awarded the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Soma Award for community work inspired by Buddhist thought. At present, Prentice is the founder and leader of the Embodiment Institute and the Black Embodiment Initiative, as well as host of the Finding Our Way podcast. So hello, Prentice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I would love to hear a little bit about your own story and what has led you to the work that you do. I was raised in between Pentecostal and Baptist traditions in the South. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel actually very deeply informed by those experiences, even though they are not my current practices. I think um, to be someone now who works with the body from the body growing up in a Pentecostal environment was really illuminating for me. There's a lot of things I learned early on about what the body could do, what the body had to say. And then, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty political family. I think my politics have changed over time, but my family was pretty politically aware and especially around race. Um, felt like it shaped the way that I experienced reality and the way that I um, also early on um, was really working through how to self-determine in my body inside of a really oppressive context, what that actually felt like to remain in my dignity, to not hide or not be kind of overwhelmed with shame. Later on, I started organizing, organizing initially out of college around uh, prisons and policing, mass incarceration, those issues. And I think feeling the magnitude of the trauma that my community and other communities had experienced really led me down this path of understanding trauma, understanding healing, and uh, bringing it all together. So it has always kind of been woven for me, um, the healing work or all of the practice that we talk about has always been deeply tied um, for me to my own experience of liberation and also my community's experience of liberation also. So would you say then that the, the social justice lens and the healing lens have always been in some sense intertwined or was there a kind of sequence there for you in your own history? I would say that they've mostly always been intertwined or mostly been in conversation with each other. There are spaces where I've been trained or where I've done, you know, intentional learning where I can feel that people are pulling them apart. But for me, because they always felt so connected, there were always questions that brought them back in closer connection. Um, we're talking about, in all of these contexts, we're talking about our lives and the experiences of our lives. So to separate that out felt like a real challenge for me. We're talking about who gets to show up to these spaces. So um, yeah, I think they've always been intertwined. And, and as I got more honest about that, I feel like my practice has gotten more deeper, gotten deeper. And when did you uh, encounter Buddhism? I would say probably when I was about 24. So 
um, a little under 20 years ago for me. Um, you know, I had had an experience in college where kind of unprompted by anything. I was just lying down one night, didn't know anything about Buddhism or any other practices I knew about. At that point, I knew about Christianity primarily. But I was lying in the bed and I was looking at my desk and realized that I had never really seen my desk. And I'd never seen the history of my desk, the kind of embedded history of what it meant to make this desk. And I became really suddenly awake to the presence of the desk and the integrity of it. And uh, the next day, I remember I was talking to a friend and they said, oh, you kind of had this experience of enlightenment last night. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it. And I always kind of carry that experience at the back of my mind because it was such a pivotal one for me about how um, deeply you could drop into the present moment and what was there when you could. Um, but not until I moved to Oakland, I think I was probably, you know, I might have been older than that, maybe 27 or something like that. There's an East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland that a friend invited me to. And it was, you know, it was a, ragtag group of people there, people who did organizing work, queer people, black people, brown people, uh, disabled folks, everybody that was meditating together. And that's how I was really introduced to Buddhism. So I studied Zen for some time later. Um, but the start of my practice was really at a community Sangha in, in Oakland in my late 20s. I wasn't planning on, on talking about this, but I guess I'm curious. It's just sort of occurring to me, I'm wondering, as you're talking about, about, you know, growing up in the Christian church, which I also did, and also having now found a different contemplative tradition, is there a way in which you think, maybe this is a bit too extreme a way to say this, but that Christianity fails the body in a way that the, at least the Buddhist tradition for you enabled, or at least assisted in, in the ability to kind of encounter yourself in a somatic way? No, I wouldn't say that. And I wouldn't say that because, you know, I grew up black Pentecostal. Mm. I, I grew up between black Pentecostal and black Baptist. My grandmother sang in the choir. People fell out regularly. We, we ran around, we danced, we sang. Yeah. It was a full body experience actually. And mm. I, I think, you know, for me, those experiences were so visceral so embodied and those are the things that I was really taught when I'd go into other spaces to be shameful about was mm. how how expressive and how full right. of feeling those experiences were so I can see in some way you know there there are ways that I felt shamed inside of my body and then there were ways that it was just I mean I think leaps ahead of other spaces I've been in, in terms of being able to incorporate or center the body. Um, and I would also say, I think in some Buddhist spaces, the body is really a, you relate to it by a kind of force. Yeah. And that's not true for, you know, every space, but I have also experienced that. So I think any kind of set of beliefs has tendencies or potentials to try to control the body or could also set the body free in particular ways. But um, I haven't found one practice to be the practice in terms mm. of relating to my own body. 
has your experience with your Pentecostal kind of roots and your Buddhist contemplative tradition, has that been compatible in, in a certain kind of way? I find them both useful for different things. Mm. Actually, I find them both useful for different things. So in that way, uh, they're compatible in my body through my expression, but um, very, very different, very, very different orientations, very, very different intentions, um, but both useful, I think, for the kinds of wildness that my body contains and what mm. it wants to express. So mm. um, I don't situate myself in any particular sect of anything. I see them as sets of practices and frameworks and beliefs and pathways and ways of communication that are sometimes useful and sometimes not depending on what's inside of me. Mm, that seems like a very healthy, pragmatic perspective. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about um, your work in somatics. And I want to um, uh, read something that's actually on your, uh, in one of your extended bios on the website. Um, and it says, fundamentally there, that is Prentice's work is to disrupt the complacency and comfort of mainstream healing and therapeutic models and infuse what we know of justice, repair and accountability into our deepest work of transformation. So um, there's a few different ways I want to kind of uh, explore this. And the first is just how does a somatic approach to therapy shift the dynamic of, of traditional therapy as you see it? One way is that we can have a really good idea. We can have a great insight. We can suddenly realize something we didn't know. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we can do it or that when the time comes to make a different decision, we won't do what we are well-practiced in or what we've always done, what we've been trained to do. So somatics for me is that, that next level of looking, awareness, practice that incorporates as much of the being as possible in the work of change or healing, which is change work also. So, um, it also just gives us a, I think it's, for me, it starts to really texture my life in a particular way, the experience of my life, the subtleties of it, the language of it, the language of my experience um, feels so much richer and that there are emotions or feelings or perception that I didn't actually know existed. I was joking with someone the other day, you know, I have a, I have a feelings wheel on my wall because I'm trained as a therapist. So I have a feelings wheel and I hate it because <laughs> I feel like it colonizes feelings so much. Yeah. There's so many things outside of that wheel that are possible to experience. So um, I think when we, when we are inviting the body, we're inviting what's beyond our kind of knowing Mm -hmm. or what we've decided is true about human feeling. We're um, allowing discovery and self-discovery and mutual discovery to, to really be at the center of it. So I think in that way too, it kind of upsets some of the paradigm around how we think about therapy. It, it, 
really honors the experience, I think, of our lives. I think that's the best way I've heard described this uh, um, perspective on something that I experienced my, myself in the context of therapy. I found in the past that when a therapist would ask me to say and give voice to how I'm feeling at that moment, it stopped me. Like I, I couldn't mm-hmm. put words to it. And I actually felt it, it made me respond that I felt like something was wrong that I couldn't, you yeah. know, does that mean that I'm actually not in touch with my feelings that I can't actually, you know, use a word from this list of terms to, to describe what I'm feeling at that moment. So I guess the question is sort of what are the, from the somatics perspective that you practice when when one is invited to express how they're feeling outside of purely that accepted vocabulary, what are the techniques or tools that are used? Mm-hmm. To have people indicate how they feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'm just thinking about in what context I'm asking the question how do you feel? I mean, it's a question that I ask. It's also a question that I encourage people to deny me an answer to if they don't feel like answering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Or to, you know, answer in, in, as a wide way of descriptive, um, array of descriptive words as possible or through a physicality, which feels like a really important, critical and, primary way that we communicate often I guess I you know it's like what are you noticing also is a question that I think I come around to a lot in my work Mm. where people can answer on the level of sensation what's the constellation of sensations that are happening in your body before maybe you're even wanting to or interested in making any meaning of them what do you see what's what's going on Um, I think that's a question that I might move to uh, more often, I think, than trying to concretize on, give me a, a word that we can both understand so I can get into that experience with you. I mostly, I mean, it, it also depends on what we're doing. If I'm doing body work with a client, what I'm mostly paying attention to as a practitioner is how do I support the letting go of contractions? How do I support mm-hmm. the wave of feeling as it's moving through the body? Because you can see it happen inside of a system, a body, a person. Um, how do I support that, make room for it, and make sure that I'm working with the consent of the person and their experience throughout? Um, we can talk about feeling on the other side of it. Yeah. One of the ways, as I understand your work, um, the the term somatics or or healing is kind of broadened is by um, not just focusing on what we might say is symptomatic of perhaps traditional therapy where it's hyper uh, kind of focused in on just the individual but rather we're taking into consideration you know generational effects generational trauma and histories of oppression racism anti-blackness so how does the, this history and this you know, type of embodied experience inform our need to shift uh, our approach to healing? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep track of all the places I want to go in my answer to you. Um, well, one is that, you know, 
the term somatics for me is very, very helpful for us in this moment, in this context, but it really only makes sense as a term kind of after colonization. Mm. It doesn't make sense as a term or a body of work or a canon before colonization. And I think that it is both, um, it can have embedded in it the, the impulses around colonization as well as it can have embedded in it the impulses around liberation. I think it, at its best, it is a, a framework that allows us to take not take, that's a, see, that's one of the things that it can do, but allows <laughs> us to bring together knowledge from so many of our communities and have them be in conversation with us. For me, one of the things that it has done that has been very, very helpful is to validate the things that I knew and the things that we practice culturally mm-hmm. to understand them um, and to attempt to recover some of the things that had been, you know, for many of our communities are, are, indigenous ways of practicing have been um, systematically kind of taken from us. And then in the ones that weren't systematically taken, they've, we've dropped them due to shame or assimilation or all of these things. So I, I think somatics has also helped me go, oh, we've been doing this. <laughs> there are practices, there are ways of being um, that we have been doing. And those, those practices that I was talking about earlier, the way that we um, have been in our bodies, in my community, the way that we have created culture to move things through our body is somatics, deeply somatics or whatever you might call it. So um, first I want to name that. But I also want to say that because I come from that place and that kind of knowing, I know that I'm not, I am an individual body, but I'm not only that, that I'm related to a collective body, to a community of people. And I feel that very, very deeply. I'm related to a, a, a historical people, ancestral people, and it goes back beyond that. So the individual self and the individual body is a very, very important site, but it's not the only one that I relate to. It's not the only one that I feel a part of. So when we talk about trauma, I absolutely have traumas that are um, unique and specific to my body and my experience. And then there is, is just as clear to me collective experiences of trauma, of displacement, of poverty, of all of these things. I've experienced both as a Black person, as a gender nonconforming person, as a, a child who grew up as a girl, like so many experiences um, that feel like collective experiences that we that we share and that we also are navigating in similar ways. So um, I think just knowing that is one element of it. And then, and then knowing that our, our, our very bodies, my body, your body, it's our bodies. Yeah, this is us, but it's also the evidence of our ancestral survival and embedded in them are all the best learnings about their environments, about what it, what it took for them to get us here. That you, you are that. You are that. You sit on the edge of your lineage as the, the best learning that they've had so far. 
And I know that about myself. I know that about myself. I know that I am a me, but I know when you look into what a me is, it's all of this that sits behind me too. So somatics opens me up to that portal. When I start to understand my body and our bodies, the bodies that I'm a part of in that way, it has you look at it. When we talk about healing, it has the, the lens itself keeps expanding. Okay, what is healing? How, how do we heal? This is a question that I sit with often. We talk about healing trauma. Is it, what can my, what can I do in my individual body to heal? Now I'm trained as a therapist too. I used to be a therapist and I would sit with people in an individual room and I still do. There's still, I think, intense value working one-on-one. Um, but at the same time, the measure for well-being as so individualized as not relational necessarily. Sure, we're like, are you, do you feel well in your relationships in your home? But what about your relationship to the place where you are? What about your relationship to history and your understanding of your ancestry or the, the histories that are actually present in this place right now? What about those relationships? How do you how are you doing in those? Are you denying them? Are you paying attention to them? Are you working through them? Um, healing is inclusive to me of, of multiple dimensions of listening, of restoration, of awareness building, of taking new action that we get to heal on all of these levels, which to me is very exciting because we get to change on all of these levels. We get to um, grow, we get to shift the outcomes for the future on all of these levels. So um, yeah, I think somatics in that way opens me up to working in multiple dimensions and working more skillfully in this one, that there's a political realm in which we can also be engaged in transformative work that actually shifts what reality looks like in this moment. And that when we're talking about building agency as a part of healing for, for collective harms to build agency collectively, we have to engage in the realm that we call political at this point Mm -hmm. and begin to restructure things so that um, we learn the lessons that are there for us to learn and that some of us don't continue to be traumatized in the same ways over and over and over again. Um, there's a lot more I could say, but I yeah, well, I, I feel like this, is, that was so beautiful. And I wanted to kind of rewind because you said something really powerful. And I just was wondering if you could unpack it just a little bit more, which is this idea that somatics only arrives after something that we then call somatics only arrives after colonization. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? I was, uh, recently reflecting on, you know, people talking about gun culture, and I don't want to get too much into that, but that people would identify their culture as being about guns was so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That's your culture is guns. I often say that, you know, a lot of what we call American culture at its core is about denial. Like the practice of denial is so embedded in American culture, guns and denial, because you need guns to enforce denial. Right. or to to silence those who refuse to deny. 
Yeah. And I think that culture, when I think about the, what culture has offered at times, and I'm not one to romanticize any particular moment in history. I know everything has its troubles, but I know that many of our practices that we call culture are about the body and are about restoring the individual and collective bodies or are about kind of syncing up and organizing individual and collective bodies for whatever task is at hand. But many of us no longer use kind of our, our cultural implements effectively. They've been commodified. So the beat that I might use to get us ready to, I don't know, go to war or for birthing babies or for celebration of accomplishment are no longer used in those ways to do those things. They're kind of just out here at any point in time. But I think our cultures were more indigenous practices that we all have, if we trace far back enough, were about being in relationship with place, sharing the meaning of that place, getting that deeply embedded in our own tissues through ritual. We're about figuring out how we process things through, sync ourselves up. All these things we talk about inside of somatics now, um, I think was the central intention of many of our cultural practices before. But a lot of that, as I said, has been erased or, um, or devalued. And now we're starting to put back together the pieces. Oh, these things were actually, they had a real intention. They served a purpose inside of a society. They weren't just a frivolous thing that we did. They actually mean something and we can uh, recover those and use them well, I think. Um, but somatics to me as a field wouldn't have made sense at some other point in time, but it makes sense now. Right. It's one of the names by which we reclaim these things that were lost. Yeah. And how we communicate across difference too, because our ancestors may not have had the same practices, but now we can say, oh, we both have nervous systems and these are the things that they do. And we can find a practice together or communicate about our own practices through this mediated thing that we call somatics, but it doesn't, um, we would have called it something different in our, in our specific location or place before. Yeah. I mean, that brings up an interesting question of kind of the relationship between um, reclaiming practices that were lost and sort of the relevance of their, their continued sort of relevance to our current kind of embodiment. And then the, the forging of new strategies, techniques, like, do you have any thoughts on that relationship? Yeah. One of them, my elders in Hawaii, um, Auntie Puanani Burgess, I was sitting with her one day and she said, well, my partner's from Hawaii. We lived in Hawaii for a long time because that's where she's from. And I uh, made a lot of deep spiritual and political connections um, with folks there. And she has been one of my elders for some years. And I, I was talking to her about kind of this question And she said, you know, for her, she was politicized during the kind of Renaissance, the Hawaiian Renaissance, where there was a reclamation of language and practices in the 70s, a kind of political awakening that happened there. 
And at the time she didn't know the language. She didn't know um, how to dance hula. And she said to one of her elders, I don't know where to begin. It feels like everything is lost. And one of her elders said, don't you have the same hands as your ancestors? Don't you have the same feet? Aren't you standing in the same place? That's all you need to begin. So we have to both recover what is there if we can, but create always in our context and in a way that makes sense for the world that exists now. So um, that's the lesson I take from, from that is we must, I think we have to always be in a practice of creation, but we don't need to intentionally forget there's so much knowledge and wisdom around us. Yeah. So healing justice is a, is a key way that you identify the work that you do. Um, so I just want to kind of unpack that, the meaning of that. What is healing justice um, and how does it differ from other approaches to social justice? Yeah, I think the intention is to, to support and fill out and in a, in a life-giving way kind of complexify some of the things that we do inside of what people call social justice now or organizing or movement building. Um, healing justice is, I mean, we've been talking about some of it. Some of it is the recovery of ancestral practices. I think that's a, yeah. that's a real part um, because that in, inside of it has its own political self-determination. Um, but it's also about the, how we do the work, understanding, um, what we're talking about, you know, I often say that what I'm most interested in is not some kind of idea of freedom or liberation that lives out here, but I'm interested in people's felt sense of liberation in their bodies and in their lives. I'm also interested as one of my um, colleagues, Mark Anthony Johnson talks about, he talks about the extension of black lifespan because our lifespan and the quality of our lives is so diminished by the experience of oppression, which I think is the intention of it. Mm. But the things that we do politically, the measure for me has to be to enhance the quality and extend the lifespan of our folks because that's what's so impacted. Um, so healing justice puts that question kind of at the center of our efforts and our political work. How does it enhance our lives? How does it heal us? How does it extend our lives? And let everything that we do be kind of organized around that. I think the last piece, I mean, there are many pieces, but um, it also leads us to the, how do we address what's, what's always going to be challenging in our community, the experiences of trauma, conflict, all of these things that have just happened to some degree by the very nature of being human. Hmm. But how do we address these things without re-traumatizing each other through the mechanisms of incarceration that we see has devastated our communities over the years, which means that we have to build a kind of emotional capacity skill and will around repair and transformation that it has to be at the very center of how we address 
the what's most challenging in our communities too. So healing justice points us in that direction also. So then a follow-up to that question might be, why is healing without social justice insufficient? And why is social justice without healing insufficient? I'll put it like this. What is your political work if it is not about answering those questions? What is the political realm if it is not about caring for the people who are involved in it? What is it? I think we've accepted a logic around what healing is. It actually doesn't serve us at all. We've accepted that as mm -hmm. what politics is about. But to me, I'm like, what, what else could it be about other than caring for us? And I, I think kind of conversely there to your other question, if your healing causes you to deny, causes you to be in a practice of denial, what are you stopping yourself from actually healing? What are you preventing yourself from healing from? And denial meaning who's allowed, who's invited, who has access, who doesn't have access to it. Um, if we're talking about foods that are quote unquote nutritional or, or sustain us and only certain people have access to that because a whole myriad of political decisions and you might feel like this is personally healing for me, but it's inside of a context of a commodification that denies access to others. What does healing mean for you then? Mm -hmm. How can you heal yourself and damage the earth? So I, I think we have to understand that our habit of denial extends even into our spaces of healing, that they're not immune from that. I wrote something the other day that I didn't actually intend to be, uh, I don't know, incendiary or something. It just seemed like an obvious thing to me that so much about self-care and wellness is about managing the management and control of white women's anxiety and, and, and ensuring white male achievement, that the industries are about that. And the things that get sold and, and marketed are really about those experiences, white women's anxiety and male, white male achievement. I'm not saying that those things aren't real. I'm saying that the industry cares about those things. It's not interested in what will it take for uh, black communities that went through the war on drugs? What will it take for those folks to heal from those multiple and compounding traumas? that's not in the self-help aisle. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I think we have to keep looking at what is actually healing and what is trying to keep some people complacent because it doesn't want to disturb the status quo enough for more of us to heal. Yeah. What you're saying about um, so much about the wellness industry being about managing um, um, white women's anxiety, it, it reminds me of, there's a, a friend of mine who's quite outlandish on social media or quite um, um, outspoken. And she loves to kind of point out these ridiculous memes that some of these wellness leaders um, uh, present. And I want to read one to you because it just brings up what you're talking about. And this is from 
well, I'll say it, <laughs> to be magnetic. Mm-hmm. Your, re- your relationship to money directly mirrors your relationship with yourself. Money flows when you heal what's holding you back. And she, uh, that is Alex, crossed this out and, and put your relationship to money directly mirrors systemic racism, money flows <laughs> when you heal systemic racism. <laughs> Period. Yeah, Period. absolutely. Absolutely. But it's this ongoing, you know, universalizing of mm-hmm. a version of wellness that is really just about exactly like you said, just, oh yeah, your own problem. The, the only problem you have is just your own projections on the world. Yeah. Which yeah. also can be a misinterpretation of Buddhism, right? Right. In certain instances. That's right. And it's like, no, actually, there are systems, there are structures that's right. that's that are right. perpetuating these things. And it's offensive, right? To then universalize that message and, right. and expect that it's applicable to everyone. That's right. And it's been really challenging, you know, for me on that end to, you know, I live in this kind of in liminal in between space where I feel adjacent to that world, but I don't feel accepted by that world. And I actually am not interested in that, but trying to support people who maybe come from places more like the places I come, I come from to, to trust that wellness is something that is that could have relevance for our lives if we um, if we speak truth into it essentially is really challenging because it's it's been such a segregated and uh, a world that in, intentionally engages I think in what some folks call spiritual pi- bypass or denial I think it it happens on purpose so um, mm. I think troubling that enough to make room for us to actually imagine that we can start to to restructure thing or things or reframe things so that we can our healing can be at the center um, is a challenge. Yeah. So one of the the words in healing um, that is often considered sort of the end point or the destination is this um, idea of becoming whole or wholeness. Mm-hmm. And you speak a lot about um, you know liberation and freedom and the embodied experience of freedom. So I'm wondering if you see these concepts of, as synonymous, or if you think this idea of wholeness is actually problematic in some way and would differ from something like experiencing felt liberation in the body. Hmm. You know, my honest answer to that is that um, there are folks in my life who are disability justice organizers who have. Um, really troubled just the use of the the term wholeness. The Where I am is that there's never a moment where you are not whole. So I don't always yeah. know how to engage in it. I know that there are moments where we can be disconnected from parts of ourselves or parts of ourselves can be under-resourced. But to say that we are whole or unwhole, um, it's not exactly a a uh, uh, paradigm that I relate to. And yes, for me, it's, um, I'm interested in uh, that felt sense of liberation, which for me doesn't mean that you feel good necessarily, you know, yeah. healing yeah. doesn't make you nice. It doesn't mean that you feel good all the time. It means that you feel what is there mm-hmm. and you get to be more real time in your life and that there's, there's, more of a 
capacity, I guess, to, to, to be with more. Mm. Um, and that may be an individual capacity that gets developed. And then the places where it's harder, there's a collective capacity that gets developed too, for us to be with more. Um, so I, I think I would say that that is more what I'm thinking about when we're talking about healing is not becoming whole, but to just be in our lives as they are. Yeah. Which might not sound that exciting, but to me, it's, there's nothing more exciting than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like that you just sort of very quickly passed over this idea that I think is quite provocative for a lot of people, which is this idea that being quote unquote whole or being, you know, present with the body or in, in some um, intimacy with your own felt sense of freedom is doesn't necessarily entail being nice all the time right because yeah. we have this this notion in our in our various wellness communities that that to the degree that you are quote unquote whole or liberated right. in whatever sense your contemplative tradition happens to unpack that word you are going to be super nice and yeah <laughs> yeah totally totally i'm not nice i i want to say that i i feel that i am mostly kind and mostly warm and mostly curious, but I'm not nice. I'm not, mm. I don't think anybody's ever called me that. And what's the difference then between kind and nice from your perspective? Nice feels like a, an effort or a standard that feels important to me to hold. It doesn't feel that way to me. I think there's a warmth that I feel around my own life and other lives around me. I feel curious and open to life. Um, but I don't feel that uh, I need to perform any particular thing. Niceness feels like a efforting and a, and a willingness to override what is actually happening inside of me mm. in order to pretend a particular kind of affection towards another person. Mm. And I'm not willing to override how I feel. It's actually what I've done so much work not to do is to override how I feel. Um, but I feel generally warm I feel what comes from me from my deepest place is a curiosity um, but I'm not nice I'm not mean either I don't go out of my way to do that yeah. but but if I have something to say that feels hard um, I work to be able to say that yeah exactly yeah. it seems like there's something in between you know nice and mean that is that is utterly important to everything we're talking about, you know, namely a kind of, I don't know, uh, an intensity that's very pointed and, you know, guided by a certain uh, imperative of, of healing or, or mm -hmm. healing justice. And that doesn't always show up as, you know, the nicest of words, but is still somehow necessary to this path. Absolutely. And, and, I never feel the intention of denying anyone their dignity or denying myself my own dignity, but I can tell that there are, there are some people trained in the world, unconsciously trained to find my dignity threatening, mm -hmm. scary, fearful for lots of reasons. You know, I was not trained that I could say what I felt clearly for a lot of reasons. It's dangerous or unattractive or all of these things. Um, but I like myself so much more when I say what I feel and the way that I feel it and in a way that I think 
allows us all the capacity to change, be dignified, all of that. How has your experience of queerness intersected with all of this? Like what um, lens has it offered onto this, um, this somatic uh, perspective? I said recently that before I identified it as queer, there was something in me that maybe was always looking for the third space Mm -hmm. or always looking for the in-between space, the liminal space. I think that is where I have always been most comfortable. And I think when, you know, I got to be a teenager and suddenly sexuality was more present with me, I just always felt very honest about my expression and my attraction, which took me in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. So I really think that it, it, it emerged out of what was already present for me, which is kind of a, I always say it was kind of like a sideways looking at the world, mm-hmm. um, engaging in the world, just a little bit. Queer. A little bit queer, <laughs> a little bit at an angle. <laughs> And you can feel, I mean, you know, even inside of queer communities, there's sometimes a rigidifying that people want from you around your queerness, around your oh, expression, yeah. around your desire. And I feel like I have to remain queer even in those spaces um, to be really honest to myself. But my queerness was always a way of kind of looking at the world, uh, a way of uh, being in relationship to how I actually felt. Mm and continues to be my guide. I mean, I feel like queerness saved my life in so many ways. Hmm. Well, something really beautiful that you say in one of the interviews that I listened to was you talk about the kind of spiritual purpose of queer people. And um, I wanna talk a little bit about that because I think it's really beautiful. And, And so I'm curious just what you think that might be or what that might mean to say that that queer people have a spiritual purpose. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious your thoughts too. I feel like this is really unfolding for me and having, you know, been in in conversation and relationship with people from different places whose indigenous practices also kind of hold that belief. it's been just a, a period of reflection for me about what my life and way of seeing and way of being has allowed in my family, in my communities, what uh, bridges I've been able to create in communication um, because of my queerness, because of my ability to hold multiple perspectives um, with a very similar weight inside of my being. I don't feel completely more down in gender or more down in a particular way of expressing my sexuality. Um, And I have used that power in my own life to um, create more understanding, to uh, support repair 
So I don't, I, I don't want to say that every queer person has that role in their lives or in their families or community. But I will say that for my own life, that particular way of experiencing the world that feels like the root of my queerness has also been the root of uh, a kind of skill and gift around supporting repair and those feel like in relationships. So I get curious. I'm like, it feels like a spiritual purpose in my body. I don't want to say that's everybody's spiritual purpose, but it feels very much like I feel called into sharing my queerness in that way to bring more of us together. Yeah. 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 I, I, I really like what you said in the interview about how you say how spirit is something that lives at the periphery of the known. And you said um, that for you, spirit was where the big questions and possibilities mm -hmm. live. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of this conversation that I was having um, somewhat recently with someone about who spoke about ideologies of certainty. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that because it seemed to kind of suggest that when spirituality becomes certain, it can harden into another dogma yeah. and can potentially be violent or divisive in, in, in various ways. So to me, like that seems to invite this kind of, you know, your definition of it living at the, at the periphery of the known is sort of this queer definition of spirit that, that keeps us from defaulting back into kind of rigid formulas of behavior or, right. or experience. And, and I think that w for me, when I think about you know, and of course we had, I had the language of coming out because that was, you know, my generation of that was the experience. But for me, the encountering now in retrospect, of course, at the time it was, you know, traumatic in its own way. <laughs> um, but in retrospect, I see it as it's almost analogous to a, a, an awakening type of experience in mm -hmm. that, in that it forces you to, um, look differently at all of the ways in which you've been socialized to behave, all of the ways that you've been taught to think, because you cannot fit into those ways of thinking. Yeah, yeah. And so it's 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 traumatic because you didn't necessarily choose to be, you know, launched into that trajectory, <laughs> and so it can be kind of somewhat painful, but. In, in retrospect, it's like it forges this new openness toward possibility that I think yeah. is profoundly spiritual. And then, and for me, I guess, you know, in my own, you know, now I'm a 38 year old gay man and gay male culture is very much established. And so for me, like the, the spiritual kind of part of the spiritual call, I feel like is, is remembering to inhabit that space at the periphery of the known exactly. rather than merely being like, okay, well now there's a lovely set, you know, set of formulas exactly. for what it means to be a gay man. I can go ahead and, you know, situate myself in any number of different ways that have been established. Um, but yeah, there's something, <laughs> at least for <laughs> something for me that seems to be a little bit of uh, maybe betrayal is too strong of a word, but um a relinquishing of the insight that is in that experience of being frustrated out of a paradigm. You that's know? right. That's right. Mm, that's such a uh, beautiful reminder. Um, I was thinking about when I was 16, I came out and I said, I'm a lesbian. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And then that week, this boy moved to town and he was so cute and he had this <laughs> gap teeth. And I was like, oh crap. And I remember he came to me and I said, he was like, do you want to go out? And I thought, I wish you'd come like two weeks earlier because I just had this big coming out thing and now you're here and it's messing up my whole thing. <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, wait, didn't you just tell us you're a lesbian? <laughs> exactly. So now you're confused. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, you know, I'm just grateful that I was able to kind of laugh about it and, and be just okay with myself and curious about myself. Cause there are so many paths we can, we can take that, like I said earlier, want to make you into a rigid thing, but to be uh, really, you know, that, that kind of the periphery of the known is really about being in your body mm. <laughs> and really about being in relationship to your body and not just allowing that relationship with your body to be usurped by yeah. um, who people tell you that you are and what you feel there for. Um, but to be present with what is actually happening for me? What do I feel? What do I feel called to do? What do I feel called to express? What do I feel drawn to in this moment? And that may be for the rest of my life and it may be right now, but I don't, I don't owe anybody. I don't owe anybody the story of my own life and feeling that I get to have that. I get to experience that. And that to me is, is freedom. Freedom is choice for me. Mm. Yeah. And choosing. Mm. So if there is a set of spiritual tasks for queer people who feel motivated to um, maybe take up this call in some way, or feel moved in the way that we're talking about queer spirituality. Uh, I mean, is it too much to suggest that there are such, that there's a, there's a set list of tasks or um, what do you think about that? Mm. I felt really touched by the question. Cause I, I think in the, the interview, I first talked about queer spirituality. I felt like I was kind of tiptoeing. Mm-hmm. out and saying something I was afraid to say. And so I think you picking up this thread and asking that question, um, I don't know, it really touches something tender in me. <sighs> and, I, and I think I don't know the task yet, other than I just want to say that I feel touched by that question and the invitation to explore what that, what that could be um, yeah. for us. I appreciate that. Yeah, and maybe an invitation to... The queer people who are who are listening who also feel kind of touched by that question because I do think it's an I mean that's sort of the spirit behind the the issue that I'm mentioning is just there's so much work I think to be done in terms of um, the relationship between queerness and contemplative traditions queerness mm-hmm. and theology you know what does a inclusive theology of queerness look like what does an inclusive contemplative tradition of queerness look like because I mean, even in the tradition that I practice, I do feel a little bit like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that there are very few spiritual communities, at least that I've been in touch with, where I haven't felt a little bit, you know, like the odd one. And maybe that's just a constitutive feeling for queer people to feel a little bit odd, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's mm-hmm. a part of our embodiment. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Gosh. And yet, I think the 
perhaps the odd feeling is when we allow it to be in those spaces, it, it starts to stretch the parameters of belonging for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> it's been so lovely chatting to you, Prentice. And um, I really appreciate all the work that you do. And it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it took us a while to finally get this interview. We were doing <laughs> interview tag, but I'm really grateful we had this time together and that we got to the topic of queer spirituality. That feels really, um, yeah. it feels like a, a kind of open question. That's a really nice way to end our conversation. Is there anything else that you want to share about anything that we've talked about before we? No, just share my gratitude that we were able to find time and thank you for the thoughtfulness. Nice yeah, to talk to you. Absolutely. Is there anything that's coming up for you in terms of workshops, talks, anything you want to share with the audience? Workshops, talks, not so much on the calendar, things here and there, but um, I guess the thing that I probably am supposed to say is that um, the second season of my podcast, Finding Our Way, is coming out mid-April at some point. So look out for that. Amazing. All right. Well, I've been speaking with Prentice Hemphill. Prentice is the founder and leader of the Embodiment Institute and the Black Embodiment Initiative, and is also the host of the Finding Our Way podcast. So make sure you find your way to that podcast. Hey. hey. <laughs> Thanks so much, Prentice, for your time. Thank you. Take care.